Alright, let's go ahead and stand up and start with prayer. Oh, heavenly King, the comfort of the Spirit of Truth, who art everywhere present to fill us all things, treasure your blessings and giver of life, come and abide in us and cleanse us from every impurity, and save our souls, a good one. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So I've heard from a few people last week uh, was helpful to just kind of lay out Lent and what's coming. Uh, we're going to keep, I'll say, taking our or say pace or notes from basically Lent. So today we're going to try to finish this up. We will finish it up. Uh, next week uh, we will, I think I'll probably go ahead and talk a little bit about uh, the great canon. Uh, did you all talk about the first week of Lent? The canon of St. Andrew the Great? St. Andrew of Crete, not St. Andrew of Crete, sorry. That's fine. Do you want one of these? Sebastian and Abigail, do you guys need a copy of this? So, uh, as I was saying, we're going to finish this week uh, with St. John of Damascus. Next week, uh, I'm going to go a little bit into uh, the great canon from St. Andrew of Crete. Uh, a lot of the reason, I think I said this last time, part of the reason why I want us to read the Fathers is just a little bit so that it doesn't seem so overwhelming. Not that this isn't in, an, in its own way <laughs> overwhelming, but you could, like, this is manageable, right? This isn't like. Well, I was going to say Greek, but it was written in Greek. <laughs> right? Uh, like, this isn't that much harder than Scripture, if you're honest with yourself. Because <laughs> Scripture is hard, right? Uh, to be able then with the canon, because I, I, I'm not going to recommend. You, you need to be at, at least one of the weeknights of the first week of Lent. Uh, that means Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday night. <clears throat> Wednesday night is when we do a pre-sanctified liturgy. Uh, if this wasn't a parish and this is a monastery, we would also then do follow that pre-sanctified by the canon, great complement canon, but <laughs> we're not a monastery. We're a parish. Uh, at a seminary, we did it. It was long days. We were in the first Monday of Lent. We were in church for eight hours uh, in blocks, but... That was also not that doing most everything, but still not everything. Everything. So the church has in, monas in monastic life, especially the first week of Lent, it's like, like gearing up, like we're going to do this, right? So next Sunday, I want us to talk about uh, and kind of look at the way that uh, the the images of repentance, the themes of that canon, uh, but it also shows us how the Orthodox Church reads Scripture. So I'm trying to, like, this is like, how many birds can I hit with one stone, right? <laughs> and as you probably realize in all of this, like, there's so many layers. Like, we talk about one thing, and it implicates and brings in a lot of different things, right? Well, why do we read it like that? Well, because of X, Y, and Z, right? So the week after that, on um, the first Sunday of Lent, it's not the first Sunday of Lent, but it's basically that transitional. It's uh, the expulsion from paradise, uh, cheese Fair Sunday. 
did you all talk about the fasting that's coming up? Where we basically go off meat, then we go off cheese, and then have fun. Uh, but what we'll have on that Sunday, because there's Forgiveness Vespers, that we'll have some coffee hour, and then we'll move into Forgiveness Vespers. We're not going to have class. The class will be Vespers, and then the kicking off of Lent. Okay? I'm trying to think. I will probably, at the next few Sundays, I know well, there's a few more themes from your reading that you wanted to draw out, or you have some... Uh, we will, for example, I would like to talk in a little bit more depth about the prayer that's like the prayer for Lent, uh, the prayer of St. Ephraim the Syrian, um, uh, to talk a little bit more about pre-sanctified liturgy, uh, just some of those themes, because if I hit on these things, we're hitting on orthodox spirituality or the way that we do things, uh, etc. And then things like fasting, almsgiving, uh, being a part of the body of Christ and what that uh, the responsibilities that comes with that, those kind of things. Okay? Uh, this is a reminder as well. Some of you have given me either like a photo, and it's probably the best way, is to, if you have a, a baptismal certificate, that you've taken a photograph of it, or if it's like a letter from the pastor, whoever baptized you trinitarianly in water, right? No Coca-Cola, no rock, whatever, blah, blah, blah. There's all sorts of crazy stuff that happens. Um, <laughs> get that now because you don't want to wait till like two weeks before uh, we're coming to Lazarus Saturday and put on the calendar for those of you who have been with us for a while like Lazarus Saturday is the day where folks will be baptized or chrismated in uh, to be received so get on the calendar mark that Saturday uh, we'll also be talking about confession because you're going to need to give a life confession before then you need to find a sponsor. If you haven't found a sponsor, find a sponsor or somebody. Uh, this doesn't have to be like your bestie. This is somebody who will pray for you, uh, who that you kind of accountability uh, who can who's you've gotten to know because we need to invest in folks here because this isn't just idea world. This is like the body of Christ where we're integrated and meshed together in life in Christ together. Right. Uh, so. Find that baptismal certificate. If you have a copy of it, you can just take a picture of it and send it to me because there's other traditions where they don't keep any kind of records whatsoever. If you can't get any kind of records or say the person who baptized you died or something like that, then I will conditionally baptize you, which means you'll be baptized, but I'll just say basically it's to make sure, right? I'll say CYA, I think you, <laughs> right? Like, it's just making sure uh, that there's no, like, we want to make sure that you're initiated into the body, right? Those who have already been baptized will be chrismated. Are there any questions about any of that? I feel like I need to talk, start talking about it now and not a week before, <laughs> because in that week or two before that you're received, you need, we'll schedule a time to do a life confession. Don't worry about that. We'll talk about that closer to, okay? Everybody gets nervous with confession. Don't worry. I was about worry. to say, is that as intimidating as it sounds? Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes and no. I mean, it's not like when I was 12, you know, uh, on March 3rd, I blah, 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 you know. But it's like, what are the base... You can probably think of times in your life where you had thematic problematics. 
I don't know why I just rhymed. You know, certain sins that beset you. There's stuff that's probably sins that beset you in your teenage years that are still with you. Or they've developed and they got worse. Worse. Not worst. Uh, so it's talking about those themes. Uh, it's not, I, and I'll tell you with confession, I'm not asking, for, I don't know stories. Like you don't need to tell me what you did with such and such and who and whatever. I, I don't need to really know about that stuff. God knows, you know, that's not the point of confession is to tell all the stories and the gory details, right? Uh, it's also not there to then talk about other people's sins. I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll talk about confession, okay? Uh, don't. I, everybody feels awkward about owning their stuff in front of somebody else, right? Uh, trust me, I've heard all sorts of stuff. And it's never made me go. <laughs> it makes me go, yeah. I, yeah, me too. <laughs> With almost everything. If you're actually aware, like, you're almost everything you'd say. If it's not something explicit, it's like you're adjacent to it, so you get it, right? So there's the basic bearing of the shame in confession that is healthy and is part of the process. Because it, in owning it, like, there's an icon of confession where it's like a, a snake coming out of the mouth. Uh, because you're owning something in you, and doing that, it's kind of in a way like... You're identifying it and saying, I, that's not me. Like, it's something outside of me that I don't want to participate in and I want to move away from. It's not magic. It's not going to just, you know, these passions, as we're talking about, right? They're, they've got their claws in us. But the path forward, that vulnerability, that bearing, the, like, actually bearing the shame, like when God calls out in the garden, where are you? What do they do? And their shame, they run away instead of saying, "Here I am, and I done messed up." You know, <laughs> like, yeah. let's make this work, right? They run away. So, somebody had a hand up. Yeah. So, the Gala baptism, you other mentioned like um, Trinitarian and nothing, oh, like nothing weird. What's that for? I'm just. What is what for? The the picture for for you. I need a baptismal certificate. That's what the picture is. It's just easy to take a picture and send me an email. Than having, you know, some people's baptismal certificates were 20, 30 years ago, so they might be fragile or something like that. So you would count it as a real baptism? A baptism? Yes. Okay. The OCA, if you've been baptized in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with water, then the OCA Synod, the Russian church generally, accepts that as baptism. There's a debate out there, and we can talk about that separately outside of class. It's kind of silly. but um, You said Lazarus. Sunday? Saturday. Saturday? It's the Saturday before Palm Sunday. Okay. Does anybody have a calendar? Let's start there. One of those things. Look up. Yeah, one of these things. Got some answers here, Father. It's right here on April 8th. Which is the day before Western Easter, right? Day before Western Easter, I think, this year. I don't know. I've, it's, yeah. I never pay attention to Western yeah, it Easter. Is. <laughs> uh, it's our Palm Sunday. You know. It's our Palm Sunday on Western Easter this year. Another hand, yeah. So if we get it, the purpose of a certificate of baptism is because you guys accept uh, baptism, like like if I were to find my Roman Catholic baptism. If you're baptized in the Roman Catholic Church, then yeah, you've been baptized. Okay. So if you can't find the certificate wherever you were baptized, especially if it's Roman Catholic, you should be able to call up the office and they should be able to produce or find the ledger metric book. We have a metric book where I keep all of the data of when people are baptized, who their godparents were, when they were born, like all that kind of stuff. 
Sounds really medieval, right? Because <laughs> we keep records of stuff, because this stuff matters. All right? Any other questions? Let's dive in here. Let's go ahead. I think we stopped with, uh, we only got a page and a half through, didn't we? Mm -hmm. But I bounced around a little bit, so that makes me feel better. Would somebody read aloud the deceitful passions, that paragraph? Or, like, that whole, like, into the other page? Go ahead. Loud and clear, please. <clears throat> Moreover, impassioned love, essential pleasure, takes a great variety of forms. For when the soul slackens its vigilance and is no longer strengthened by the fear of God, when it ceases to apply itself in its love for Christ to the practice of the virtues, the pleasures which deceive it are many. For countless pleasures surge to and fro, attracting the eyes of the soul. Pleasures of the body, of material things, of overindulgence, of praise, laziness, anger, of power, avarice, and greed. These pleasures have a glittering and attractive appearance, which, though deceptive, readily seduces those who do not have any great love for virtue and are not willing to endure hardship for its sake. Every attachment to material things produces pleasure and delight in the man subject to such attachment, thus showing how useless and harmful is the soul's desiring aspect when governed by passion. For when the man subject to this aspect of the soul is deprived of what he is wanting, he is overcome by wrath, anger, resentment, and rancor. And if through such senseless attachments some small habit gains the upper hand, the man to whom this happens is imperceptibly and irredeemably held fast by the pleasure hidden in the attachment until he breaks free of it. <coughs> As we have said already, sensual concupiscence concupiscent concupiscent pleasure takes a great $30 million dollar word there <laughs> it finds satisfaction not only in unchastity in other bodily indulgences but also in every other passion for self-restraint does not consist only in abstaining from unchastity and sexual pleasure it also means renouncing all the other forms of indulgence too hence a man addicted to material wealth avarice or greed is also licentious and dissolute for just as the sensual man loves the pleasures of the body, so the avarice, avaricious man lusts for the pleasures of material possessions. Indeed, the latter is far more, the latter is the more dissolute in that the force driving him is by nature less compelling. For in all fairness, a charioteer can be called unskilled, not when he fails to control a difficult and unmanageable horse, but only if he cannot control a much less spirited animal. It is quite obvious that a desire for material things is altogether abnormal and contrary to nature, and that it derives its power not from nature, but from a deliberate sinful choice. He who has yielded freely to such desire therefore sins inexcusably. So we must realize that the love of pleasure is not merely limited to the overindulgence and pampering of the body, but includes every craving and attachment of the soul, whatever the form or object of the desire. That's why we're reading it. <laughs> what jumps out at you about this? Burn? I really appreciate the imagery of the, the man taking the horse. And that it's not that we can't control the the really hard things. It's it's when we can't even have self-control in the little things. Right. He's like, sex is a natural drive. Avariciousness. <laughs> Desire for money is less of a natural impulse. So it's much more, in a way, virtuous if you can control your sexual appetite 
than it is. It's like that's not even something like bodily necessary. Like it's so you should more easily be able to control the desire for money and wealth. Do you know where the charioteer image comes from? Plato. That's one of the things the fathers like. There's all scripture through here, but there's also they're using metaphors, images, and it's helpful, right? Like you can think about a charioteer being able to control the soul. Like, uh, I mean, I've never been in a chariot, <laughs> but I get yeah, I've seen the movies, right? Like, uh, but it's very helpful that kind of like energy, that impulse, because if we actually are vigilant, right? Because it starts off with vigilance over our heart. Uh, some of these desires are things they, they have that kind of feeling to them. They're like a crazy horse. And we have to put in submission. We have to put we have to train our bodies, right? Paul talks like this. He talks about having to uh, discipline his body so that he doesn't box the air right? Like so he's not just doing what he's doing in vain, right? Anything else jump out at you? The small habit gaining the upper hand and is now irredeemably held fast. Yep, that's right. We'll get to this in a minute. There's this kind of like process of sin, right? No. Most of us, most of us, me included, passions are certain sins. Like, they're so second nature. It's like second nature. Like, there is no fight. It's just like, yeah. right? That's why I did the sermon on malicious gossip and judgment. Because when I started reading about it, I was just like, ah. <laughs> but the fathers are really clear this is gossip and this is judgment and they're really close to each other and I'm like oh man like 30% of my language needs to just like disappear right like and it's second nature because we're it, we're even socialized into it this is just what you do you talk about other people so and it, it is deceitful like, this is the whole like there's this deceitfulness is like what I was doing trying with the kids trying to talk about right like it's not that the prodigal son like made a really bad decision uh, in, in a logical sense it made perfect sense freedom money pleasures right he's living the dream like this is exactly what all the world tells us and all of the advertising it's the like the go live in prodigality go live in the far country definitely away from your parents <laughs> definitely on your own and then when the going gets tough, then you're enslaved. Like, and there's that. Sl there's even like that enslaved aspect to the passions because they seem like they're going to promise a whole lot. Pleasure, right? Pleasure promises. I mean, for a lot of us, everything. Our culture. That is what everything is about. Like, it's like a Super Bowl advertisement. <laughs> <laughs> the whole, thing, all of them, right? Like, which passion? Uh, there was a great presentation by a brother a priest in the diocese um he's just now getting out of seminary so he's got fresh material that he's like you know written papers and stuff on we had this great like you want this passion uh lust tinder you want this uh like laziness netflix he just had like every app or like website uh gossip or something you know like that facebook like instagram <laughs> vainglory instagram like Twitter, wrath. <laughs> all of the, like, the passions are all there. And they even literally, the way they want to make money the, <laughs> is off your passion, right? That's why our algorithms, and this is also, this is, I'm going to, 
This is why if you are watching stuff about orthodoxy on the internet, and the things that have the most views, sometimes the things with the most views are actually poisonous. They're deceitful. Because it might be somebody who, you know, they use big words, but I'm talking about some specific, but even the presentation, there's anger in it. Or there's even like a, a weird sensuality even that's out there with certain uh, so-called representatives of orthodoxy. So be careful about what you're consuming, even if it's quote-unquote religious, right? So I, I love the image that he gives here about, let's see here, in the middle of that first reading. When we are in the grip of these passions, uh, when we don't get our way, we act like little petulant children. Right? We're overcome by wrath, anger, resentment, and rancor because we're not getting our addiction. We're not getting our hit. Right? I don't, rec I don't recognize that at all. <laughs> What do you all think about the fact, let's see here, because he seems, is he overstating his case when he says that any, it's quite obvious, this is, sorry, this is on the second page, it's quite obvious that a desire for material things is altogether abnormal and contrary to nature. How does that strike you? It's strong? It's very strong, and it's like, from like a almost like a biological standpoint you, you can understand it because we don't need money doesn't let us live there's no money isn't a physical thing really I mean there's dollars but that's a, more of a the dollar symbolizes the money and so versus like gluttony yeah versus gluttony it's the food itself and so whenever but yet at the same time our so every our society is money is the fuel Mm -hmm. And money is how you get the good things. And so it, it's like completely alien to if you're like brought up by the world to how you would see it. I think this is alien to most Christian discourse, period. I mean, most Christian discourse, I mean, there's whole sermon series about how to pleasure each other in marriage. Oh, I'm talking huge churches. They'll do like, I, it's not like three weeks, they'll go like two months using Song of Songs. And it's like, hold on. <laughs> I think somebody... <laughs> so, if you think I'm, t I'm totally serious, there is an over-sensuality period. That's just a really obvious example. That is out there that we really do pamper ourselves and have a very high view of pleasure period. So, I mean, I go back to the gossip thing, right? Like, just how that kind of stung my own conscience. Gluttony. I mean, just all of these things where we give ourselves a lot of space. Where if we actually were, like, it's not attachment. Though we shouldn't be attached to material things in such a way that they're going to get between us and God. That means rightly ordered desires, Right? It is natural, it is good and right, it is blessed, the marriage bed, right? It's undefiled, right? It's a scriptural language. Uh, that money is something that we have to have. We don't have to have it, but like as a symbolic exchange in our economy, right? But we almost always, with all of these things, food, we need food. We almost always give ourselves extreme latitude. 
<laughs> as to what's acceptable, right? So part of reading this is just kind of like, it's like a shock of just like, okay, when the fathers talk about this, they're, he's, he's strong about this because we really should have and seek first God and his kingdom. If you look at martyrdom accounts, one of the things, it's like over-attachment to like maybe a parent, right? Who does not hate mother, father, but like, and come after me. There's some aspect where that natural love for uh, somebody in our family has an it, like this is a boundary. And if it's like martyrdom's on the line, right? Am I going to confess Jesus or my? Yes, Sebastian. Something that really strikes me was when it says that we fall into those patterns and addictions and pleasures because we don't have two things. It says, what is it? Any great love for virtue and not willing to endure hardship. And when I read that, I feel kind of, I experience like a type of loneliness because of how um, the culture works. Because I don't find much encouragement, like people to show me, okay, like it's good to fight against your body, and here is how you do it, and there is people doing it. Like it's so, it's such a lonely path to follow in this culture. <laughs> it's like, like where do I find the, the encouragement? Because I want to do it, but it's, it's, it's so odd. To, the idea of fighting against your body and willingly go through, yeah. Um, right, and and to to be clear. Dis and I know that you're not saying this, but I want to make sure everybody understands this. Asceticism, the ascetical life, fasting, etc. This is not about hurting yourself. This is not about uh, kind of neurotically doing things. Uh, this is why you need somebody to help and to be around, to be able to say, like, maybe you need to, like, you're sick and you're still living off of, like, you know, hummus and soup, like, you need to go eat a hamburger or like you need some like chicken noodle soup or something, right? Like there, there is time and a place. Uh, remember what we read earlier, right? Like you have all of these, um, oh, what was it? Uh, the bodily virtues, but when the, when the body is strong, when the body is weak, it needs holy humility and thanksgiving suffices for everything. So you can see in the tradition, like the way that the fathers talk, they're going to talk rhetorically really strong when you're talking to a young man. <laughs> like, you can do this. Yeah. You need to actually struggle. Like, you need to fast. You can go three days without eating and just drinking water. Because guess what? That's all the rage out there anyways. <laughs> it's really fascinating to me when people, like, want to talk about fasting or the ascetical life of the church. They'll do all sorts of diets and, like, workout routines. CrossFit is insane, right? And then it comes to church like, I can't do it. <laughs> like, we're 32. Like, like, I get that it's hard, but we have this idea that there should be nothing in the spiritual life that's hard. But if you know marriage is not easy, like real friendship is not easy, raising kids is not easy, dealing with people you don't like at work is not easy, driving down the road sometimes can be not easy. <laughs> so why would you think the spiritual life is just... Sorry, this is one of my things. I'm just like, come on. It's okay. Let's uh, keep moving, or I'm going to just go start going in loops and sidetracks. Uh, the soul has, we'll go to the passions and tripartite division of the soul. I'm going to go ahead and read these out loud, okay? The soul has three aspects. The intelligent, the insensitive, and the desiring. 
We'll let his description of sins and the path of healing help flesh out what the why the soul he divides into three parts, okay? Sins of intelligent aspect. I think we, we get this one, right? Unbelief, heresy, folly, blasphemy, ingratitude, and assent to sins originating in the soul's passable aspect. Passable or insensitive. Right? Path of healing. Unwavering and wavering faith in God and in true, undeviating and orthodox teachings. Through the continual study of the inspired utterances of the Spirit, through pure and ceaseless prayer, and through the offering of thanks to God. So this is kind of the rational aspect, right? This is where ideas is. And you can see how there can be sins that originate from here with heresy, right? Like, there's a sin. If you don't know who God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is, or you start thinking, you know, the Father and the Son are just interchangeable whatevers. Uh, you're gonna that this is very this is how the church teaches. If you mess with those kind of ideas, and it's something that you're like into, and you're kind of like you think of yourself as a thinker, it's gonna start affecting other aspects of the spiritual life, because the theology of the church is not just some ideas that are kind of there, and then there's like the way we live. It doesn't really matter what you think. No, the church, like, what you think enfleshes and embodies itself, right? So, it is important what you think. <coughs> but it's not just think as in, like, cogitation, right? This is about, like, faith in God. Uh, not being sidetracked into your mind of uh, living into doubt. I, I, I think, and I think there's some space for this, but I'm going to open this up a little bit. It's very common for us... And that same kind of like, um, we're being pastoral, we're being sensitive for the space of doubt. Mm -hmm. are, are you following with me, Track? Like, it's okay to doubt. On some level, uh, we have to discern what it is that you're actually doubting, right? Doubting as in like, I don't fully understand something, so I'm not sure I've got my head wrapped around it. Versus kind of active, it's not uh, disbelief in God, Right? That doesn't mean that you should feel necessarily ashamed if you're struggling with that, but it is a deficiency. It's not actually healthy. I have heard uh, talks given about Christianity like there, uh, a certain ounce or like aspect of doubt is really healthy. And I'm like, it seems to me you kind of want to have your cake and you eat it too. Like you kind of want to be like have your foot out in the world and your foot in the church. And at some point, that doesn't mean that there's not space for struggle. I'm not saying that, but I think you know what I'm saying. That there's like Let's let doubt just blossom and grow. I've never seen that go good places. <laughs> and almost always see undermine. And almost always undermines in the practice of what we actually do, right? Any questions or things, question mark, about just these sins or the path of healing? I guess I have a question about heresy, because this is something I thought about a lot as I read about, you know, the famous heretics. <laughs> you know? How are we supposed to view the, the heresy that, it, that did, did this person who obviously was devoting their life to God and very much studying the scriptures and everything developed a radical right. idea? Where do we are we supposed to think that came from? So, in our hymnody, the way that we talk about heretics, and I'm going to be so 
this is not and and people can play fast and loose with this like the Presbyterians on the road are heretics I don't think that's actually the right word to use for them uh, or like just Protestantism is just all heresy there's heresies that run through there's heresies that like are spring up in the church right because if we're looking at the original heresies they actually come from like presbyters or bishops in the Orthodox Church <laughs> Arius was a presbyter right he's a priest Nestorius was the Archbishop of Constantinople, right? Like, so heresy is that doesn't mean that I'm, I'm using tech in a technical way because I think sometimes we use it a little like that's wrong thinking, therefore it's heresy. But heresy doesn't mean just wrong thinking. We kind of cover that in other areas. Heresy is when somebody, uh, uh, say Arius, the church had to get together what before the church got together and debated and argued you can still athanasius should say he's wrong but it was until the church came together and declared and said like that particular teaching is heretical it's splitting the body of christ it is going to cause all sorts of problems that is then heresy so when we go around saying like presbyterians are heretics that's not really like they're not in full communion with us they have wrong teachings that i think are really unhelpful <laughs> But I don't think using so ad hoc the word heresy is very helpful. I, your question is about where does it come from? So the way that we talk about hymnody about some of those is that there's an arrogance. Because the church is coming together and saying, like, we've just spent months and months and letters and letters. And now we're all together. And now everybody's saying, this is wrong. You have a chance to repent now. I'll give me an example. Origen is somebody who the church after he died, declared that there was teachings that he taught that were wrong. Anathema, right? The reality is, if you read Origen, he says, like, I want to submit myself and my teachings to the teaching in the mind of the church. He straight up says that. So <clears throat> to anathematize certain of his teachings after the fact is a very different place. We don't have services where we sing about, like, the heretic Origen. By the way, we do... We do actually have hymnody where we talk about Arius as the arch-heretic, uh, Nestorius, the divine hook of justice with Arius because the idea is that he died on the toilet. So that does actually show up in some of our hymnody, which I think is kind of cool, actually. But in the way of, like, what church actually says, like, here's the boundaries, and these are teachings that are incorrect, and then we're even going to, like, we even sing them. I know you, like... Marcionism, Arianism, <laughs> we, we will sing about this. Because we we're saying, like, these are the anathema, like, these are things that are out of bounds of orthodoxy and they will damage your soul. Where exactly those things come up within these folks, I think a lot of it has to do with pride. The desire to be on your own, like, I'm right. Even when the rest of the church is saying, you're wrong. Like, and now you have an opportunity to repent. But there's no repentance. There's an obstinacy. And be like, Oh, but I have never seen it. I've seen it. <laughs> Folks who've been in the church for years and years and years, and one thing happens, and they have their mind set, this is the way it is, and then they sail right out of the church. And they might start their own orthodox, um, square, uh, scare quotes for <laughs> the recording, right? Say, like, orthodox church. They dress exactly the same way. They sing the same stuff. But they're not in communion with any bishop. <clears throat> They'll call themselves Father Such and Such, or... Archbishop of Farragut in all of East Tennessee. <coughs> You're laughing. These things exist. Does that help? 
don't know if it's that helpful, but that, <laughs> all right. Sins of the insensitive aspect, heartlessness, hatred, lack of compassion, rancor, envy, murder, and dwelling constantly on such things. You can see this uh, the picture that's painted here of like what's insensitive and this like passive like heartlessness. I kind of like that, right? There's something about it's not your mind. And it's not like your physicality, like it's this in-between space. Uh, and the path of healing is deep sympathy for one's fellow men, love, gentleness, brotherly affection, compassion, forbearance, and kindness. Sins of desiring aspect, gluttony, greed, drunkenness, unchastity, adultery, uncleanliness, licentiousness, love of material things, and the desire for empty glory, gold, wealth, and the pleasures of the flesh. And what is the path of healing? It's going to be a little bit more gritty than the uh, touchy-feely aspect of the passive or insensitive aspect. This is fasting, self-control, hardship. This goes back to, like, actually, this is, I think we, there was a virtue of the body that was, like, sleeping on the ground, right? Hardship. A total shedding of possessions and their distribution to the poor. Desire for the imperishable blessings held in store. Longing for the kingdom of God and aspiration for divine sonship. Any questions or comments about these two other aspects of the soul? <coughs> We're getting to some of the origin of these things uh, because uh, in this next section we're going to uh, break down um, the eight thoughts uh, and then how exactly these thoughts uh, get into us right so we need to learn this is one of the tasks uh, that we have in following Christ is to distinguish impassioned thoughts that promote every sin the way the fathers talk about like our thoughts our uh, engagement with the created order this is a story from the Synoxarian about a bishop who was so pure in heart, uh, there was before him at some party that he went to, uh, there was a woman who was dancing, and she was naked, basically. And all he did is say glory to God, because his, uh, the aspect of his, uh, he didn't have lust after her. He was able to just say glory to God for his creation. So the story is there is that, again, it's, the issue is not necessarily like nakedness or, uh, a really awesome pie <laughs> or right like uh, carne asada what, whatever it is the sin is actually how we re relate to that right it's not the thought it's the passions that we attach and how we engage with the created order what is that is why it needs to we need to be detached from it detached doesn't mean that I don't love and I don't care like when we say detached we kind of mean alienated that's not what they mean. What they mean is being able to see and be able to relate to it in the way that it is. And with God, right? Because sin is how we use something or how we abuse something, right? So, the eight thoughts. You've probably heard of these things, right? The eight thoughts, the eight sins. This is this is a famous list, right? Like Gregory the Great... Uh, if you go back and here are the cardinal sins, basically, right? So the cardinal virtues, these are the gluttony, chastity, avarice, anger, dejection, listlessness, self-esteem, and pride. This goes, uh, you'll find this, this list 
this is like the eight sins. Uh, seven deadly sins. Seven deadly sins. Sorry, this is related to the seven deadly sins. It just has one added to it. I couldn't remember the, the phrase. You all have heard of seven deadly sins, right? This comes from the like this comes from the teachings of the fathers. Uh, it comes from Evagrius, and it goes over to Gregory the Great, and then uh, it gets you know there's little edits, but it's seven or eight basically. These are the deadly sins, right? It does not, this is very important, it's why I have it underlined. It does not lie within our power to decide whether or not these eight thoughts are going to arise and disturb us. But to dwell on them or not to dwell on them, to excite the passions or not to excite them, does lie within our power. You know, I have a lot of folks who will come to confession and they will uh, confess like thinking about something or, and the question always is, try, I have to basically lay this out, right? Like, just because a thought comes into your head doesn't mean that you've sinned. I think a lot of us think whatever, if I have a thought, I'm guilty because I shouldn't have the thoughts. That's never been the, what the spiritual teaching of the church, right? It is the thought comes in my head and then I either, as it says, dwell on it. I mean, we're going to go the whole series of how we relate to a thought, right? Because the thought itself, like, oh, that cake looks really good. I should eat another piece. Random thought, right? Like, that, that doesn't mean I'm a glutton just because I think about a piece of cake for the second time, right? <laughs> it's when I go, yeah, all right, cake. I'm going to get up and go over there and get that cake it's going to be a little bit bigger than the first time around. Right? And you're just kind of like, oh man, I, this cake. And then somebody has already gotten the piece of cake. And then what happens? Now I'm angry because my kid took the piece of cake that was supposed to be mine, even though I'm being gluttonous, right? And now anger, rancor, all that stuff comes up, right? Now, no hardship. I just want the pleasure. You can see this uh, way of relating to temptation. The father, St. John, has this whole kind of like uh, when it's born to when it actually comes to fruition. This is like James 1, right? Sin, it begins as a thought, and then it births death, right? So the first aspect of relating to temptation, provocation. It's a suggestion that comes from the enemy. Like, do this, do that. Such as our Lord himself experienced, right? Because our Lord is sinless. He experienced temptation, right? Command that these stones become bread. As we have already said, it is not within our power to prevent provocations. The next step, it's beyond just the thought coming. This is coupling, is the acceptance of the thought suggested by the enemy. It means dwelling on the thought and choosing deliberately to dally with it in a pleasurable manner. It's like flirting or playing footsie with it, right? Like, hmm. And I think there's, there's a little bit of, we start kind of getting into a gray area where it's like, we do want to get to that part where we don't ever even get to the second step of coupling. But I, and I will say this in confession with folks, it's like struggling with a temptation where you like maybe even sit and daydream about it for a few minutes, but then finally you say no, and you like run away from Potiphar's wife, right? <laughs> that is virtuous, right? That you should actually not rejoice in this kind of like, woo, I did it, but like, didn't fall into the trap even if you were thinking about it but you do need to be aware of the fact that I was thinking about it means that I need to be careful 
Take heed lest you fall, right? Three, passion is the state resulting from coupling with a thought provoked by the enemy. It means letting the imagination brood on the thought continually. Kind of like in the background, like the operating server, it's just kind of like a passion that's just there. Four, wrestling. This is a resistance offered to the impassioned thought. It may result either in our destroying the passion and the thought, that is to say the impassioned thought, or in our assenting to it. As St. Paul says, quote, the flesh desires in a way that opposes the spirit, the spirit in a way that opposes the flesh. The one is contrary to the other. Right? So there needs to be, in fighting with our thoughts, there's a wrestling aspect to this that is good. Five, captivity is the forcible and compulsive abduction of the heart already dominated by prepossession and long habit. Right? That's kind of the, this like second habit thing, second nature thing. The thought and passion thought comes, and you, I'm already eating the second piece of cake before. Like it's, I don't have, I have no resistance. I'm just there. Yes. The only way to, uh, increase, the only way to increase this is to practice uh, recognizing it, and over and over. Yeah. So, I'll give you a few, few tools to talk about this. Specifically, there's some tools here. There can be, this is not to mean that you become, I'm going to use the word neurotic again, but this kind of like self-obsession where, because the way that the fathers will talk about, I, I suggested the way of the ascetics, the very beginning of that and all the fathers, the also uh, unseen warfare, you can't, it's not just about you just saying no to something. You turn to God and you ask him for help to rescue you, to give you the desire to not desire the thing that is not really the good thing, but to desire him, right? So there is some aspect where we're obviously engaged and we ourselves, but it's much more helpful for us. Uh, this is the difference between us and being Stoics. This is the difference between us and being like a lot of the like Greek philosophers, they would talk in, they talk in very similar ways, right? Because they have a whole psychology of why we end up doing things we don't want to do, right? It's not only Christians that realize this. It's the Christians who say, you on your own can't do it. So it's say it makes you stronger. Yeah, and Christians will say that too. But the, the, the Christians are always in this position of, of supplication to God to help. Because they, I think Christians are a little bit more uh, realizing how deep the roots go with some of these things. And the despair that can come from if you try to do it on your own because what if you can't I mean there's a temptation to despair with this as Christians like I'm sure if you were a Christian before this path might, this might make clear what you've already tried uh, and there are some things I mean what does our Lord say to Paul like you're left with a thorn in this, like there, there is some aspect of humility or being able uh, taking what our struggles are and in a way, even being thankful that they allow us to need God and be aware of him. Because without some of those things, we are liable to just kind of want to go off into the far country and spoil our inheritance. Six is assent. is giving approval to the passion inherent in the thought. Like we're already captive to it. We don't even, I mean, maybe we did some wrestling, but it was like pretty like lackadaisical. And we just say, okay. And seven, of course, is the actual committing of the sin. What happens is some of these things, it's not, it's, they kind of bleed into each other, right? And some of them, it's like, 
right? There's not even, or the wrestling might be five seconds, and then we're saying no, yes or no. So this isn't some like lengthy process. This can be like in a split second. If this is in the middle of the page underlined, if we can confront the first of these things, the provocation, in a dispassionate way or firmly uh, rebut it, I would say, at the outset, we thereby cut off at once everything that comes after. So when we have an impression, an impassioned thought, when we desire something in an inordinate way or not the way that it is, it's not for us, it's not for this time, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. This is why, uh, in the way of the ascetics, it'll say, uh, as a part of training yourself, uh, things that seem kind of harsh, but it's like, don't get that second cup of coffee. You don't need that second cup of coffee. Don't like, don't pamper yourself. <coughs> find ways to kind of train yourself so that you can because you this is going to require training right you, spiritual vigilance requires training uh, as much as any kind of like actual physical training this is why what you know what asceticism means it, it's athletic it's like this is what ascetic like you are an athlete uh, this is the language of Paul right this, it's just more detailed so, how are the eight passions destroyed? Well, gluttony, self-control, right? Don't eat so much. The fathers connect gluttony to the second one. Uh, John Cash, if you want to read about this, he talks about the eight passions. Uh, he, they're very much, if you want to control below the belly, then you need to control your belly. They connect those passions together. Because you can't control what goes into your mouth. Why can't, you can't control much else in your life. Okay? To unchastity by desire for God and longing for the blessings held in store. You know, contemplation of God, who he is, heaven. Three, avarice. So I'm gonna say unchastity. Why would it why would unchastity be healed by desire for God? Yes. It's because part of that desire is a sort of union with another human being, and so if we turn our mind to the union of God, it's a greater union. Overshadows what we were thinking about in the before. So I think I've said this before, like all of the natural desires that we have are good and right. They were given to us. The problem is, is how we use it. So what do monastics do with sexual desire? They have to transmute it, transfigure it, and direct desire towards God. That might sound weird, but it's not weird. <laughs> this is why you have all this like bridal mysticism. You have like martyrdom language. It's like the, the, the bride of God. Like all of this, you know, like you're marrying God, that's kind of in monastic life. <clears throat> because the church is actually really um, practical. It's not like you become a monk and suddenly all your desires are extinguished, male or female, right? Uh, what happens is the struggle has to happen in a different way. Because man and wife are supposed to be chaste too. It's not a free-for-all. We can talk about that more in detail uh, offline. <laughs> is that similar to how uh, anger is dealt with? Uh, yeah. Hopefully redirected yeah. towards sin. Yes. It's a redirection. Correct. That's the way, and they'll usually use that as the example. Uh, they, they Joel is the saying. redirection? Um, I'm fine with using the term redirection. It's kind of, I would say like transfiguring it. Taking something that is given to you and not abusing it, but using it in the right, to, like a, a, a fruitful direction, right? Mm -hmm. Anger was given to us. It's a natural thing, but it shouldn't be shed abroad on all like other people around us. 
but there's anger that there's a righteous anger that goes against uh, uh, what we need to be fighting against. So it's like redirecting the energy and changing the form. Yep. You can be angry at Satan. You can be angry at sin. You can be not, and I, I don't think redirect the anger against yourself because then we're going to get into problems, right? This is about being healthy and self-care in a very different way than we typically yeah. talk about it, but it really is. And so that's why, like, yes, there's a strong aspect to it, but you need somebody, like a, a priest, to be able to say, like, like eat something. <laughs> or like uh, St. Sophronio will say, uh, when he's uh, standing over the abyss, he's like, take sit, step back and take, have a cup of tea. Like, there's times where, but you need discernment in all of this. This is why John Cashin and other fathers will talk about discernment. I think even John did in this. Discernment is the queen. Like, you really need to be able to discern. Because if you don't have discernment, you're going to be going to extremes or laxities that are not actually helpful. The golden mean, the royal path. Okay? Three, avarice, compassion for the poor. Almsgiving. All right? Four, anger by goodwill and love for all men. Five, worldly dejection by spiritual joy. Six, listlessness by patience, perseverance, and offering thanks to God. I think five and six are uh, interestingly more apropos for our time than maybe even some of the other ones. They're like even stronger and they feed. You can see how all of these are connected to each other. Like this is a big web of things that influences each other. Seven, self-esteem by doing good in secret and by praying constantly with a contrite heart. Eight, pride by not judging or despising anyone in the manner of the boastful Pharisee, and by considering oneself the least of all men. When the intellect has been freed in this way from the passions we have described and been raised up to God, it will henceforth live the life of blessedness, receiving the pledge of the Holy Spirit. And when it departs this life, dispassionate and full of true knowledge, it will stand before the light of the Holy Trinity, and with the divine angels will shine in glory through all eternity so that is talking about I put in here I think I probably could have been portraits of the tripartite soul actually earlier so that's the intellect fulfilled in God right then we have the insensitive power this is on the next page what does this look like uh, a soul deified right who's brought into the light of God let's go to the, the second full paragraph there when the insensitive power is imbued with love and deep sympathy for one's fellow men and desire with purity and self-restraint, the intelligence is illuminated. But when dislike of one's fellow men dominates the insensitive power and desire is dissolute, the intelligence is in darkness. The intelligence is healthy, restrained, and enlightened when it has the passions under control, perceives the inner essences of God's creatures spiritually, and is raised up towards the blessed and holy trinity. The insensitive power functions in accordance with nature when it loves all men and does not bear a grievance or harbor malice against anybody. Desire, likewise, conforms with nature when through humility, self-control, and a total shedding of possessions, it kills the passions, that is, the pleasures of the flesh, the appetite for material wealth and transient glory, and turns to the love that is divine and immortal. For desire is drawn towards three things, the pleasure of the flesh, vain self-glory, and the acquisition of material wealth. As a result of this senseless appetite, it scorns God and his commandments and forgets his generosity. It turns like a savage beast against its neighbor. It plunges the intelligence into darkness and prevents it from looking towards the truth. 
He who has acquired a spiritual understanding of this truth will share even here on earth in the kingdom of heaven and will live a blessed life in expectation of the blessedness that awaits those who love God. May we too be worthy of that blessedness through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You can see when a soul is dissolute, when it's disordered, when it's full of passions, it's not able to think correctly because it can't feel correctly because its desires are all out of whack. Right? That's why it eats those pods and it's just empty. It's just in the pigsty. And it desires to go back to the Father. That's why it has to go through this path of repentance. Is there any aspect of these these two paragraphs that jumped out? It keeps referring to the total shedding of all possessions mm-hmm. throughout it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, how are we supposed to take that? Like, I think it's the same discernment with all of these things. Uh, there is the need, and the Father's talked about this, you need, you need what you need, mm-hmm. right? If you've got children, you're going to need more stuff. Yeah, you're going to, but if, there's always that need for discernment. And I think this is always a live tension. You're always going to hear me talk about tension. This is, I just talk about tensions, right? You could, like, if you discerned, like Anthony the Great, that you need to live as simply as possible with the least amount of things, then you need to listen to your conscience and you need to do something about it. Uh, we almost always in this culture go and give ourselves a lot of space and go in the opposite direction. So don't lose the tension. Uh, don't let go of the tension to just say, I don't need to think about that anymore. But you need to think about it from time to time. Kind of do a, a, a category, an assessment. Am I just amassing things because I need a bunch of doodads? Or could this stuff... Or money that it did spend on that could be given to the church or to poor people, like, or save it for my kid. Like, there's other things that you can do with that. So, it's also, remember, he's a monastic. So, he's talking to other monastics. Uh, and we need to hear this in the state of life that we're in and be discerning about it without just letting it slide by. You'd say that I'm being soft on that, but I think this is the mind of the church. If you see, like, different people in different stations of life do different things it'd be really unwise if the husband decides that he's going to give everything away and the wife is just like I'm not there yet and then you destroy the family is that actually wise no (laughs) is there room to be able to try to get her to be a little convicted like you and move that way or maybe you don't need the stuff you have in the garage (laughs) the scene in Lame is where he gives all the silverware to the guy that broke in like then you shouldn't have done that <laughs> right so what is this about perceiving then we'll, we'll end with this perceiving the inner essences of God's creature spiritually that's in that insensitive power paragraph what do you think that means there's a debate that I encountered once <clears throat> they're talking about Maximus the confessor one of the saints and the question was posed to these scholars of Maximus. Does a righteous person see a tree differently? What would you say? Why? When I've I've felt in that way, I feel like I notice things more. And when I'm not, when I'm down in the other way, I don't, I lack the awareness or the comprehension. I also think they're just um, <clears throat> when 
you think through the themes and the symbolism throughout the th throughout the scripture and church history, the tree should make you think through um, the garden in Revelation. You should think through um, that we have been grafted into the the family of God. Yeah. Like it, sh it should bring about images and and center you back to this is what God has spoken to us and we would see that differently with eyes for someone that has that has eyes to see it. Yeah. You can you can just say that we stop seeing things for simply what they are and what they rather what they mean. This is uh all right. Heidegger talks about basically looking at like a tree and all you see in it is wood to plane and make a house out of. Right? That's what the tree is. It's a resource. You see the river, you're like, oh, we need a lot of energy out of that river, right? Uh, that is not seeing the essence of, like, what God made things for, right? You can see passions that are attached to those things as opposed to, like, a scriptural, like, biblical imagination or I would say, like, attentiveness or even, like, love. Like, you can love trees, uh, not in a weird way, but, like, in a, like, the tree, like, it gives glory to God. And you can feel, like, there's, when we are sinful, when we're sinful, but, like, when we're a mesh in our passions and the dejection, all this, we, it, like we literally kind of feel like this. But when we're when we're like opened up, like we are opened up, like our body changes. Even you were gonna say something? Yeah, I was, I was just going to. You said it better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> I have more practice at this point. <laughs> but so those two scholars disagreed with each other, which I found was interesting. One was orthodox, one was not. But so we won't go there. But. <laughs> the ability to be able to see like uh, to be able to love to be able to desire rightly though that is what a deified this is what it means to walk with God so that when we see a tree we know that it's glorifying God that it's clapping even though we can't physically see it clapping maybe if the wind gets strong enough mm -hmm. right like we understand that the world is alive with the glory of God <coughs> that means we're alive otherwise we're in the pigsty any last questions? I think we're good. Like basically the end is saying like, you need to struggle for virtue. Like you, this is, you're going to fall down. You're going to find yourself in the pigsty. You're going to find yourself in all sorts of different types of pigsties throughout time, but it's coming home because the father's before you say anything, he's already there waiting and the calf is slain, right? That is the good news. This might seem like a program of like, whoo, but it is the path of salvation. It is going to actually make you alive more. And people around you will know. Because they already know the places you're dead. <laughs> so, let's give them something different. Let's end in prayer. Lord, now let us thou thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen the salvation which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to enlighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. Where do you want the... Uh...